This fellow Ronaldo is a cod. Arsene Wenger's been in Japan for a year. He doesn't know anything about English football. I will love it if we beat them. It's the history of the Tottenham. I have nothing to say. I'm so sorry, I have nothing to say. Con Giovanni, yeah, incredible. Dribble, 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 dribble. Penalties? What is penalties? <laughs> Who are Man United? Last week, during the lull of international break, France Football, the people behind the Ballon d'Or, released their ranking of the 50 greatest football managers ever using the following criteria. Club winners track an inheritance left on the game, personality in addition to a fourth, the duration and impact of the career. Uh, did you see this list, Andrew? What I did. did. It was it? a bit of a... Uh, so... Like just, these, these lists are always difficult. They are, yeah. And very subjective. Like Renus Michels, who became number one, the famous Dutch manager. Like, I don't think he... He does have a huge impact if you want to say that Barcelona way and the Ajax way are both, you know, inherit from the abstract that was Renus Mikkels, but or Mika, however you pronounce his name. But at the same time, you, you could say Johan Cruyff, who is number four on this list. Was the one who actually implemented those things. Yeah. Well, at Barcelona, certainly. Well, at Ajax as well. People say, and at the at Netherlands, at national team level, all of them say that, like all of his teammates and people around who knew things at the time was... Johan's in charge. You know, he, he tells everyone what to do. He tells people how to play. He enforces things. And that's how things go. But at the same time, you turn that around and you have to look at, okay, what makes a great manager great? Is it their longevity? Is it their their long-term impact upon the game? And if that's the case, then Renus Mikkels doesn't have that because he wasn't in the game for as long as other managers were. And neither was Johan Cruyff, for that matter. And the long-term impact, uh, you can say, you know was uh, Pep Guardiola, who was number five on this list, which is a ridiculous number for a manager still in, you know... Still going. Still going, and, like, you know, what, by what level are you measuring that? Like, like what has his impact on the game really been, really? Yeah, and I, I, I'd also uh, echo that sentiment with Arrigo Saki, who's number three on the list, who, while had a huge impact at the, the highest time... highs. Exactly, but similar to Pep Guardiola, it didn't necessarily inflict huge swathes of change upon the rest of the global game. Because you weren't good enough. Teams weren't good enough to play the Arrigo Saki way. And it's like that with Barcelona. Is teams aren't good enough. Like Blackpool in 2011 or 12. Yeah, 11, I think. Yeah, like that shows you like a team trying to play the Barcelona 2008, 2009, 2010 way... You can't necessarily always do it unless they have a player to the likes of Leo, Leo Messi or have a team to the standard of that Barcelona side. Like, it it it's not a prerequisite for playing that type of football, but it certainly helps being successful with that football. And I feel the same between Asaki and Guardiola's. They both put forward different, completely contrasting styles of football, all based around you know controlling the game, but and controlling possession. But n- neither really took hold throughout the many different layers of football. It's not like the Saki's way took hold in the 1990s it didn't like a couple of teams tried to do it but even when Capello eventually took over from Saki he, he started as a kind of he started following that way but eventually just went back to the classic old school Italian style of playing counter-attacking good football but counter-attacking football defensive football shutting things down and that wasn't the pure Saki way and I imagine success with Pep Guardiola if you look at people who necessarily followed him at Barcelona B and then later at Barcelona Luis Enrique did not play you know Tiki Taka or whatever you want, you know, that Barcelona style of the late 2000s. You, you didn't play that, but yet were very successful, the same as Capello was in the 90s. 
like we always say that there's a lot of disciples of Bielsa. Uh, yeah, or like even Bielsa's like number forty eight on this list. Yeah, today. like yeah. even uh, like we say disciples of Klopp, but yeah. we don't really say disciple. Like they're like they haven't been like Wagner. I would say is a disciple of Klopp. Yeah, 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 yeah. They say he's successful, but like with Pep Guardiola, you don't really say anyone's a disciple of Guardiola either. So like that's well, it's too early. Yeah, it's too early to to judge that because he's what ten years out from his career beginnings as a as a top class manager. You you have to wait twenty years for that. Like you can say that no one. Like, no one who followed Alex Ferguson, who played for Alex Ferguson, who was influenced by Alex Ferguson, has been a major success. Steve McLaren being the, the biggest success, and he was, a, like, a very good coach already before he went under Ferguson's wing. And he's the one with the most trophies, I believe, uh, at this point, from someone who's come... Probably, with yeah. Title just, and, without and, the numbers in front of me, I just guess that he probably he, is. He is. Well, see Bruce's promotions. Mark Hughes has done all right. Uh, Roy Keane, obviously, his promotions... Uh, Mark Hughes has done well but yeah. never won anything what's the name of your man uh, Brian Robson. Brian Robson Paul Ince you can list the entire like that entire 1990s team yeah Paul Scholes like Solskjaer at the moment is doing as well as anyone from his disciples he's the most he's the most direct disciple of Ferguson really but you can say that the English game followed from Manchester United maybe not in 2000 but certainly in the 90s that was the way everyone followed from in 2000 Ferguson became more continental in his style and it changed the game but to go back to your point about disciples of, of managers at the same time if you want to talk about that like the, the list is obviously weighted uh, in favour of more recent times hence you have the likes of Pep Guardiola near the top and Carlo Ancelotti near the Even top. Even someone like it, I th- I find it strange that uh, Arsene Menger is at number thirty two, and then like you've got some... Jurgen Klopp is at twenty seven. Yeah, twenty seven. Like, that doesn't mean stuff like Jurgen that. Klopp has won what two league titles, two league titles, and cups, a few cup titles. Gone to a Champions League final a couple times. Yeah, you like Arsene Wenger. So changed the way yeah. football was played in France, Japan, and England. In a ten-year spell, not even well, on, not even on the pitch, but off the pitch as well. Yeah, and maintained like a top four finish for what twenty something years. Twenty years at least. Twenty-one years of the twenty-two year reign. I think that's like that's what he did, and like that has the longevity side. It has the influence side. He won trophies as well. He's been to Champions League finals, went to other European finals. With uh, you know. Even at his lowest points, he was still winning the FA Cup during yeah. the last four seasons at Arsenal. Yeah, and at the same time, on a shoestring budget compared to his competitors, like like Arsenal at times, the time of the Emirates. Yeah, but Arsenal often had were the fourth or fifth biggest uh, trans wage bill holders, but also were very low down in the transfer stakes, and he did that. But like away from him, like like Luis Aragonés is there at forty fourth. Why is he at forty fourth? Because if anything, he built like he did build. He won the Euros two thousand and eight with Spain, but before then he was like a so so manager in La Liga who who had some good followers, but at the same time wasn't breaking the mold in the way that other managers on this list were like like you omissions. What omissions? That's probably the best way to go it because we could list out the whole fifty, but you're not going to know most of them. But like, I'm thinking. I'm looking at these now. Otto Rehagel, you know, his influence we, we is almost passing beyond uh, memory now. Uh, you'd, a lot of people would have varying Victor Maslow or uh, Bella Gutman, you know, a lot of people would have varying, how would you say it, ideas about their influence on the game overall. Like some would say, oh, they've been crucial to the development of the game, like Bella Gutman in, in the 60s with Inter and Benfica and who else did he manage? Milan as well and... 
hungry before that in the the I remember whatever first Puskas team was back then I forget what the name of it was before he went to Real Madrid but Jose Mourinho at 13th like what yeah that seems he did generous. influence swaying the football went for for about five years everyone before Mourinho came to England everyone played 4-4-2 or very close to a 4-4-2 with two central midfielders with no one really their only job being to guard the back four and that all changed with Mourinho and then everyone switched to a 4-5-1-4-3-3 for me but you put like Jose Mourinho ahead of Louis Van Hal. I can't put it yeah it's it's bizarre or no but it, worse than that you have um, is it number well Jack Steen I'm looking at here 34th in this list 20 places behind Mourinho Jack Steen won 9 league titles in Scotland brought Scotland to a World Cup won uh, the European Cup won the European Celtic. Cup was the first British side to win the European got to another uh, Champions League final in 71 I think last final at that time maybe or was that with an Ajax no it was one or the other that they lost Ajax out. won it in 71 but no I think Feyenoord won it in 71 or was it 70 Feyenoord won it it might have been 70 because I think 70 like that was when Ajax won 3 in a row yeah. in the early 70s because uh, Feyenoord won one before Ajax did yeah Um, but like way behind that but uh, I want Bob Paisley I believe is in the 30s as well and like or what was number was he uh, I don't actually. Yeah, Pay- oh, Paisley's up 26. 26 in this. Like, Bob Paisley won what? Th- three Champions Leagues, three European Cups. Yeah. Loads of milk cups, loads of league titles. Built on the work of Bill Shankly before him and really just solidified it and made a cutthroat and turned Liverpool into all conquering. And he could, and he retired then. He just left, like, not necessarily at the height of his. Well, basically at the height of his pairs. Left them another Champions League victory, wa- league title, walk away. And he walked into the sunset and lived forever a lot much longer as he did. Like it's, it was as if it was he would did what Alex Ferguson did would have done if he retired in nineteen ninety nine. Yeah, but he's back in twenty six. But there's no doubt that Bob Paisley influenced every single Liverpool manager that followed and the Liverpool way of playing football. Everyone who played in that nineteen eighty scene that went on to manage other teams, which is quite a few, if you look at it. International football was based around it, the high pressing game. He refined that in English football away from you know the pass and move Liverpool style. Like I could go on for hours talking about this list, but uh, you know Brian Clough. Well, you know who the big omission from this list is. Yeah, tell me who's a big omission from Mick this. McCarthy. Mick McCarthy was you know, long and that brings me on to Ireland yeah. against Gibraltar <laughs> quite nicely. Nice segue. Uh, yeah, Ireland uh, start their Euro twenty twenty campaign qualifying campaign away at Gibraltar. It's it was pretty poor. Tell us honest. how depressing that that match was. It, it, the the problem was it wasn't that depressing. It was reminiscent of the last few performances of Ireland. Except they scored a goal. They did score a goal. They did play better, as in they played the ball on the ground. Uh, which you they know, had possession of the ball. They did, but maybe playing it on the ground was a was a was a side effect of the conditions. Which I know people have said the conditions weren't that bad. They've played in worse conditions. It's just it was pitch, so windy. Wind, it was ridiculous, and the ball would move. But at the same time, they were they weren't playing. They they did in the second half try to play big uh, cross field switches of play and stuff like that. But in the first half and for most of the match, and I enjoyed it like enjoyed as much as you can. I appreciated the way they played football. That they played it on the ground. Nice clean passes. Barely saw that many long balls early on in the match, and I was very pleased with that because going back for how long now? <clears throat> we're going back to Brian Kerr, probably. Yeah, probably, the la- yeah. honestly, honestly, are the last time Ireland really put the ball down and played football. Yeah, a bit. I'd agree with that. And 
that's ten more than ten years at this point before but, Stan. Because every time the ball, the classic ball was to give it back to John O'Shea and let John O'Shea launch it, or give it back to the keeper and let the keeper launch it long to nobody. Because Robbie Keane was our centre forward who was tiny by his own omission, and he would try or John Walters if he was out the right hand side, or insert Kevin Doyle slash any Daryl Murphy, any big Shane tall. Love. Well, Shane Long's not that big either. Yeah, he, but he would actually yeah. he would just launch it towards Shane Long in more recent years. Because at least he'd pace. Yeah, but that, you know... So at least there, there's evolution. There's method in the madness, I think. It was very bad. I know Gibraltar have been playing better. Like they, They've won a few games They have year. a better goal-scoring record than Ireland in the last year, which is, you know, saying something. In fairness to Gibraltar, they... they did they did they, themselves? They are out. better than the team that Ireland beat seven 0 Yeah, entirely better. Like, ago. and there was a bit of fortu- fortuity with some of the defending from Gibraltar at times. When a couple of times an own goal, it was a fantastic save from the keeper, kept out an own goal. Uh, and a couple of attempts. It was a nice corners goal as well. That, uh, it was a nice goal that Ireland eventually did score. Yeah, and in fairness, uh, and for a good McGoldrick, uh, McGoldrick had a good game up oh, front for Ireland. Yeah. Like he did set up the goal and everything like that, but he also had a chance for an easy tap in and he went for a fancy back heel that, that was cleared off the, cleared line. Off the line and yeah. he had time to actually take a touch and tap it in and that would have made it 1-0 in the first half and things could have been, been different very from, comfortable from, there, yeah. from then on and said it was comfortable but it was poor and as Mick McCarthy said he hated every minute of that match and they couldn't wait to get out of there and I think especially the last 20 minutes or so really wound down like no, like yeah, Gibraltar last twenty minutes just kind of Static with a one 0 defeat, you know, not to, you know their goal difference helps their ranking for the next time around. Everything like that helps them with the Nations League and all that type of stuff as it comes around the next Euros in four years' time. And you know, at their home ground, not to be humiliated, which they weren't. Absolutely played, played well, deserved their one 0 defeat. Forced uh, Darren Randolph into a fine save before Ireland eventually did. They score. did. They did. There was opportunities for for them in the match, which was kind of appalling. Shane Duffy. And uh, Richard, Keogh. Richard Keogh did not have a good game. Matt Doherty playing out the right wing did not have a good game, and that's kind of you could kind of see they were getting each other's way. Seamus Coleman, Matt Doherty, I think they have to do something. Well, Mick said that like it's not likely they'll do that again anytime soon. Like I'd be surprised if they both started on uh, Tuesday. Well, what are you going to do then? Because in fairness, Seamus Coleman isn't playing that badly. Like he he's playing in in not a well performing Everton side at the moment. But he is our captain. He is our best player the last 10 years, probably. At least for the last five years. Since I mean, Robbie retired. Really. Yeah, well, uh, easily the last five years, yeah. And he's not done anything wrong to lose his place in the team. And Matt Doherty is playing well, but you have to you have to accommodate good players in your side that are playing well. And Mick has said that before. No one's going to get right in on the basis of you know, their previous performances for the team. We won't have a a situation where no one's playing for their club and they get in because they're playing for Premier League side in nominal terms they'll get straight into the first team there'll be none of that that hence like the likes of McGoldrick played the likes of Enda Stevens played the, these are players who are playing well at their clubs Darren Randolph obviously is playing well as well as, uh, at Middlesbrough they're all getting into their teams because they're playing well and you have to figure something else out. Now, I'm fine with Mick playing four five one. I think the passing football is good. The defensive cover gives Ireland is better than it was when we were kind of torn asunder when we, we were playing 4-4-2 and we were kind of really spread thin in the middle and we try and like overlaps constantly on the wing and give the ball to McLean or give the ball out to Seamus Coleman on the right-hand side or whoever we play at the right-hand side. I think it's a lot more controlled. We're still lacking that incision in the final third, which is why we didn't beat Gibraltar 3-0 at least because there is nobody really like if you're relying on a right wing back slash right back slash right midfielder like Matt Doherty getting you goals 
you're in a bit of trouble. Yeah, it, obviously it is a little concerning that our right we our best position is two right backs, but uh, it it was good. Beggars can't be choosers. Yeah, but I I thought that Mick was a bit of a breath of fresh air, or at least as much of a breath of fresh air as a manager who managed the side sixteen years ago could be. Yeah, because like as you mentioned in the interview, he said he hated every minute of it. Like uh, I feel good for uh, Tony O'Donoghue who doesn't have to put up a Brett O'Neill yeah, being really aggressive aggressiveness. Him. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't even say passive aggressive. I just say aggressive. Full on aggressive. <laughs> yeah. Like uh, especially at the end of that relationship, there the two of them really just did not get on. No. And like just the fact that he's talking about players playing because or players getting into the side because well you know they're playing for the club yeah. not because of what they've done in the past. Yeah. Like that's you know he picked Jack Byrne and plays for Shamrock Rovers at the moment. Yeah. It, uh, it uh, feels like the the Irish team is moving forward after yeah. what was a disastrous twenty eighteen. Really was. And uh, we'll get a really good comparison between Martin O'Neill and Mick McCarthy, I think, on Tuesday when Ireland played Gibraltar, or played Georgia yeah. at home. Yeah, that'll be a more of a, a, a challenging match because Georgia are a better side than Gibraltar. They've got better players. They put in a better performance on, on Saturday as well. Just, you know, it, well, it's... Like, one of the last games of the World Cup qualifying uh, under Martin O'Neill for 2018's World Cup was uh, against Georgia, away from home in Tbilisi. Yeah. And it was one of the worst performances I've seen yeah. Ireland have since probably the two one winning against San Marino under Steve Staunton. It was yeah. dreadful. It was well, Georgia, there was pretty bad ones as Georgia well. Georgia had like twice as many passes passes yeah. completed. They had twice as much possession. And Ireland aren't that bad. Like these players are not that bad. They've all grown up in a modern era where you don't have to. When everyone wasn't watching teams play long balls, get in the mix or get in there, big, big, tall, big, strong players. We have good technical passes of the ball. We have Conor Huron. We have. List Jeff, Hendrick, other, Jeff Hendrick Robbie like, Brady exactly players that can actually get the ball down and play it up front like McGoldrick isn't an old fashioned uh, he's not Clinton Morrison he's not Daryl Murphy he's not that player just lob the ball at his head and hope that he brings it down and does something with it he is someone who likes to get the ball at his feet and do something with it yeah like we kind of saw that with the, the goal that he set up as well with yeah. the long ball hit over him instead of yeah. at him yeah and he ran, showed a bit of pace like I don't think I don't think uh, the Georgia defence are going to give him as much space or give him that much time to run at them as he got against Travolta because they'll just be that much better and that much fitter because I don't see him as a speed merchant that much, David Wilder. But he did set up that goal and fair play to him and fair play to Jeff Hendrick for doing what they said he would do before the match, which was get in the box and score goals. Whether he can do that against Georgia, it's going to be a lot more... It's a lot tougher scenario, but it's going to be at home. There'll be a crowd behind them. Like, it's... The conditions won't be as bad as no, well. They'll be, you know, fairly it's fairly tepid at the moment outside. Although I think there's talk of there being tennis ball protests in the crowd from just throwing a bunch of tennis balls onto the pitch or whatever. Yeah, uh, we'll see. We'll see. they won't really. I don't think it'll phase many of the players that much. They won't know what it's about. Yeah, they, ho- they're hopefully they're keeping the the FAI stuff. Yeah, I'm sure they don't care. Mick McCarthy doesn't seem to care, so yeah, I doubt anyone. He's been there and done that. Yeah, so. exactly. And if he doesn't care, I doubt anyone in the. Yeah, he's kind of the perfect manager, really, in that yeah. position that yeah. we could have had. He just kind of doesn't phase him. That's how we kind of got through Saipan. It, yeah, yeah if he could survive Saipan, I think we could survive. It kind uh, of, yeah, it's kind of these things pass through him like he's a non-corporeal being. And uh, the big. Euros qualifier that doesn't affect Ireland that I think happened was the Germany Netherlands match was on in the Netherlands. I feel bad for Ronald Coleman. Yeah, his, he, like you think because they went to the out filmed and then broadcast during the match of how he's going to switch uh, 
wingers, and it did work out in the end. They, they switched to a back three as well. Yeah, they? yeah, yeah. Like they did well. Like that tactic worked because they were two 0 down and came back to make it two yeah. all, and then. He was they got the late winner Schultz Schultz from uh, Marco Royce cross similar to Jeff Hendrickel. But the thing with that match and it's worrying because it, it reminds me of the Ajax uh, playing Real Madrid. Real, no Ajax. Who were they playing in the quarterfinals? Uh, Juventus. They're playing Juventus in the quarterfinals of Champions League, coming up next week, I believe. Two two weeks. No, ne- it's next week. Is it next week? Next week's April. Yes, yeah. week's quarterfinals. Oh my god! We need God. to get the quarterfinals out of the way soon. Um. Yeah, so Ajax are playing Juventus and that, and it's very worrying for Ajax, I think, because, you know, they they are supporting that Dutch side of the pitch. Like, they are supplying players for that defence, and they just look tired, and they looked out of it, and it was laid on in the match, and I can fear that the match will be tight against Juventus, both, both legs, and they could just get tired, and that's this is how they lost the goal against Real Madrid, both home and away laid on or you know the 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 consolation goals that turned out the, at the Bernabeu but also laid on the winning goal in the Amsterdam arena um but do you think came from like kind of defenders slow to get back not covering not marking well because they're tired and I think Germany capitalized on that not out of any design I don't think Yogi Love Yogi Love is yet safe and well he is safe because he's won the world cup and Germany aren't quick to make rash decisions with, but he still hasn't shown that he's caused a revolution in that Germany side yeah I think he's gone until Euro 2020 if Euro 2020 is a disaster he's gone I'd say but in fairness Netherlands as well they've done like come back coming back from the the World Cup qualifiers where they were and the Euros previously yeah like they failed to qualify for the easiest Euros possible yeah in and they were poor and they're poor they were poor again in the World Cup qualifiers they dropped down the rankings as a result got a hard draw as a result of that as well being in uh, with Germany again like they, they've done very well so f- they like they, they did not there's very few teams in world football who can go toe to toe to Germany for 90 minutes and then you know, home or away and the Netherlands did it uh, last like whenever that was again uh, over the weekend and Sunday and they, they did they covered themselves in pride really and like they're not they're not like I would even if Germany were really going through that bad transitional phase I still wouldn't really expect them not to top out this group yeah, and like the the results between the two clo- two teams rather doesn't really matter too much because you would think that both teams will yeah. qualify. Yeah, barring Especially a the Northern Ireland upset of some kind. Yeah, poor, poor Northern Ireland. Because <laughs> I don't think they're guaranteed to play off in the way that Scotland are, who no. can survive a yeah. three 0 defeat away at Kazakhstan. Scotland, like new president boost for Kazakhstan, and they're like that. That's the biggest result I think in Kazakh football history. I can't think of a better, I, I bigger can't result. Think of any, it's yeah. like even if they've won matches of, of equal importance, winning by that margin, and really, and they're going for fourth as well. Like yeah, and putting like that Scotland side. You know, Scotland's meant to be moving in the right direction again. It just seems like they like it's like they've got good players. They got Andy Robertson at uh, Liverpool. Yeah, and he plays got, well for Scotland. It's like, not like he doesn't show up for Scotland. They've got players in the Celtic team who was who yeah. were doing really well under Brendan Rodgers. Like they've got they, strong pros. They have a, a multitude of talent in the back. In but goalkeeper, they they have backups for them. They have goal scorers, which is something like say Ireland doesn't have. They have like proven goal scorers at different levels. And granted, but they have multiple players available that should should be doing them a job at international level. But then, like, the appointment of Alex McLeish just seemed like an old-fashioned yeah. kind of... Not even, like, a, it seemed worse than a Mick McCarthy appointment because at least with Mick McCarthy, he's been doing well at clubs yeah. even though, like, everyone hated him. He's shown an evolution of style. Yeah. His, like, Alex McLeish, another Alex Ferguson uh, protege from his time at Aberdeen. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, that, like, that's... 
shows you again the kind of the style of football that came out of Alex Ferguson's points <laughs> that wasn't that great in, in compared to like Mick McCarthy who who has shown he is able to evolve through the time because he's been managing for 30 years if, uh, almost at this stage but like with Mick McCarthy like he obviously he did Ipswich before he did Ireland and everyone hated him with Ipswich but he was still doing well there results on like, a shoestring budget he yeah. was doing what Max Allegri's doing in uh, Juventus on a much smaller scale <laughs> very comparable re- rejuvenating the whole squad every summer he massive like you remember was it uh, was it Crystal Palace when they first came into the Premier League and they had like nine they had a nine in nine out nine new signings and nine departures when they got promoted to the Premier League first with uh, Holloway Steve Holloway Steve Holloway? Ian, Ian Holloway. Holloway. Ian Holloway is their manager. And they just couldn't cope. People were saying that like for until, for months and months until they eventually settled themselves and got... Was it Ampart who came in and saved uh, them? Pulis saved them. Pulis saved them originally. And yeah, like that That was like like said, oh, this is the reason. It's not really Holloway's fault. It's because they had nine in and nine out and it's crazy and you can't expect a manager to work on it. That was what Mick McCarthy was working on every summer. On a shoestring budget. All loans, all frees cutting cutting the cloth every year and was still doing like all right finishes getting near the playoffs so they got into the playoffs, on uh, the playoffs once. once if not twice and now look at them they're rock bottom in the championship they're pretty much consigned to relegation at this point yep. and the club's in free fall really yep. like it's been a disastrous season for them he did the same stuff at Sunderland he worked miracles at Sunderland when they came from very low points and they got relegated and then he brought them back up got relegated again brought them back up he did the same at Wolves multiple times Whereas, kept them in the league Whereas uh, with Alex McLeish, like he did well back in the mid two thousands, late two thousand, late two thousands with Birmingham. Birmingham won the league cup beat Arsenal over Femi Martins. Yeah, did did well with Birmingham, but then got relegated. Did he go to Aston Villa after that. Did he, get, did he not get relegated when he won the league cup? That yeah, year? he got relegated when they won the league cup, but then I think he ended up at Birmingham or something. Yeah, he's like, that was he's, at Birmingham. Or sorry, Aston Villa. He did end up at Aston Villa. Yeah. Did terribly with Aston got, Villa. Not didn't get relegated, but just about didn't get relegated with Aston Villa. It got did terrible with a few other championship clubs. Was mid table championship at best, yeah. really. Like he's been on a downward spiral since winning the League Cup, really. Yeah. Which was definitely the peak of his career. Yeah, I'm a very fortunate victory in that. Whereas, like, like so that just means with Scotland, like, they just feel it feels like they should have made a more progressive appointment than just uh, yeah like even well, David Moyes they've tried this but they've yeah well David Moyes probably would have been a better like he did a good job at West Ham like yeah. surely enough to warrant the national team job yeah I don't know is there politics going on there or something to keep him away from the job but with uh like they tried this a few years remember they had the was it the Hearts Motherwell manager what was his name Stephen you remember he lo- he went away and he lost and they it was like. He was trying to keep it. Remember, he played a match with no strikers against like. Oh yeah, I remember Lithuania him now. That or was or yeah. Macedonia. I can't remember his name now. I do remember this, but I, yeah, it kind of he name? ruined his career by doing that. Yeah, uh, I can't remember. But his like name. that was the supposed move to more progressive football. It didn't work out. The successor of Gordon Strachan didn't really work out. There seem to be a lot of like same Z managers they appoint where who are. Old Scottish pros who think you know think today's kids don't know how to play football. Gordon Strachan, yeah, Gordon Strachan, Walter Smith. Uh, it's I'm like Alan McCoyce could have been in the run for this. He was another manager who was overlooked. Alex McLeish was was also a guy who also walked out on the job the last time he had the Scotland job to take up club management again. Like that kind of shows you the the type of person he is. He I doesn't was surprised rate the job. that they didn't go for Michael O'Neill. Because like he lives in Scotland, yeah. he's done a very good job in Northern Ireland. It felt like after they failed to qualify 
for the World Cup that he, he was would have been a more progressive, absolutely would have been a more progressive appointment. But again, it seems to go back to politics, and they have to hire from the small group of old Scottish pros that have won trophies with Rangers. Like has Scotland club. ever appointed a non-Scottish manager? I can't remember. Yeah, Bertie Volks was manager for years uh, in the early two thousands, okay, the German yeah. World Cup winner, and he won the Euros in ninety six with Germany. That just seems so bizarre, really, considering what they've done since. Yeah, it, like it, it kind of left a sour taste in their mouth, and they want to return to the old style you know a football like you'd think even Martin O'Neill would have been a better appointment although he would have probably been of the same ilk as Alec McLeish in this and maybe they wouldn't have done much better but yeah Scotland are not an enjoyable watch at the moment <laughs> I knew he, he can't take it can he he can't take it he just can't take it because without tactically and without witting him you know what I mean he just can't cope can he like you know so on March 1st, Sunday Times journalist Mark Tighe was ready to break the story of John Delaney's €100,000 bridging loan to the FAI. After reaching out for comment from Delaney himself, the story was eventually brought to the court on the 16th as Delaney sought an injunction to prevent the story from reaching the public. On the 17th, the story did break after the injunction attempt failed. Since then, the FAI have released eight separate statements on the matter. John Delaney has stepped down from his role as chief executive only to then create a new role for himself as vice executive pre- president, which seems which sees him essentially retain all of his old responsibilities except for running the League of Ireland and the Irish national team. What on earth is going on at the FAI? It's f- like there's been rumours circulating for years and they're allegedly and you couldn't talk about this, you couldn't talk about that, but everyone knew there was something afoot at the FAI and... You know, count, and this isn't even John Delaney's time. This has gone back decades. This has gone back to when Owen Hand was manager, and he was trying to talk about it. And Liam Brady often talks about it in the past, where they um they go for long, you know, long away trips to Eastern Europe for for qualifying, and all the players would be back at the back of this dodgy plane, while all the FAI executives would be in the front and first class. And they like Saipan. We merely need to say mention the footballs or the the rock hard concrete training ground. They were expected to play on meanwhile the FAI were in swanky hotels enjoying the the FIFA hospitality the 5 million euro that the, the FAI received because they agreed to drop a drop a lawsuit against FIFA like there there's countless things in the past relating to the FAI and its management that are dirt that smell I don't say are dirty or any that kind of connotation but they smell bad like these things aren't necessarily illegal I don't know I'm not a legal scholar but they, they don't seem right. They don't seem moral. They don't seem just. And this appears to be something that's... Maybe maybe they got a bit cocky and they thought they could get away with whatever they were doing. Because we don't know what they were doing, to be honest, to answer your question. We don't know what's going on at the FAI, really. What this €100,000 was about. Like, originally no one knew what this €100,000 was about. According to that injunction, it was relating to family law and, and, and uh, John Delaney's personal business with, in, in family court. And that's fair enough. But the bits about it being a bridging loan only came out after the injunction was denied by the High Court and that, you know, the, the Irish Times or the Sunday Times rather could run with the story. It, it smells really bad. Um, John Delaney seems to be done as chief executive in a move that sees him become executive vice president with a responsibility for... Blah 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 blah. It's Make- pretty like I saw a list of the, his yeah. responsibilities. I think it was in the FAI statement. It was pretty much just everything he used yeah. to do, except for running League of Ireland. Yeah, a task he didn't really do anyway. Yeah, and he did not like, and gave him back, and it was one of the things that used to 
follow him around speaking of bad smells used to follow him around like a bad smells like that's oh, the stick that's been used to yeah, beat him the most exactly sure. because he can say oh I'm doing like he negotiated that uh, collective bargaining deal for he helped negotiate or spearhead the negotiations for the collective bargaining agreement for uh, World Cup and UEFA qualifying that saw you know every team gets an equal share of the the TV money and that's what sees us have international matches every day of the week during international break which I don't know if anyone appreciates or likes I certainly don't care too much for it and I don't think many clubs care for it because their players are coming back at different times and are going at different times and their you know, injuries can happen right up to the Wednesday beforehand and previously that wasn't always the case but he took great pride in his in the, often discussing his uh, triumphs as FAI chief executive and failed to ever discuss any of the negatives associated with his FAI executive ship and yet he would appear on the likes of uh, TV talk shows and radio shows like Ray Darcy or the late, I don't know if he's ever on the Late Late Show, but Saturday Night Show and stuff like that where he would, you know, laud the presence and, you know, almost live in that lap of celebrity that, that afforded him by being near to the Irish national team. You know, there's often those stories, everyone knows the stories and the videos going around of him singing rebel IRA songs in pubs and him buying you know, everyone in the pub drinks and him renting different things in Poland during the Euros. Yeah, Euro 2012, that was very prominent. And in other places as well, Estonia, before before Euro 2012, when there the, the playoff uh, wave victory, he was doing some stuff similar to that and, you know, living it up with all the with all the fans and taking all their praise and acclaim. And, you know, then at the same time, he's cut at home while he's spending all this money living the high life party and he's sacking people who are on minimum wage jobs who work for the FAI. Like one of the things that came out of one of the statements, I think statement seven, uh, was talking about how they, I think, fivefold increased the number of staff the FAI employ, but that failed to mention, you know, that they, they in the when times got bad during the financial crisis, they would remove people from from jobs that they'd been in for decades, even part time jobs, and get rid of them and and eliminating them from the payroll. Meanwhile, he was taking in a salary in excess of three hundred thousand euro plus expenses which are being revealed by the Sunday Times as well as including his rent, which for a public sector, people are saying, oh, this is, uh, you know, this is standard practice for CEOs. And yeah, it is when you're in the private sector, when you're regulated and governed by the your shareholders and by your board of directors. John Delaney answered no one, really. The last time he appeared in front of the Oireachtas, it was a, a, a fair, you know, there were parliamentary committees. There was a fair, you know, procession of praise to him. Yeah, and like there's one of those meetings coming up in April, and this very much feels like a way for him to sidestep that meeting, where he would be in front of. Well, he the he has confirmed in 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 statement eight they did confirm that he would appear. Oh, right, okay, in front of the Oireachtas, but whether you know and. But will he be front and center, or will he be in the background, sitting there, not answering exactly. a single question? If they refer to our council, refer to the that is a question for the current CEO, and that would be the poor. Excuse me, the poor person who's Ray now, Walsh, I think, is uh, yeah, Ray Walsh, Ray Walsh, um, who's now the the interim CEO. I don't know. I don't think she's getting paid what she was getting paid the three hundred and sixty plus oh, plus I expenses. Doubt it. I really do doubt it. But like Pascal Donahue, who's the Minister for Finance in Ireland, has you know come out and questioned where the Sports Foundation Ireland because the FAI is funded in like in part and mostly by well in part because they do get television revenue from UEFA and do get money from UEFA. They are part funded by the Irish government and they're wondering, you know, they're paying an enormous amount for the CEO plus expenses and what's going on. Why is the FAI in need of bridging facilities in the middle of a year when they've had record takings the previous year? 
what what is going on there it seems like financial irregularity there has been a complaint made to the office of corporate corporate enforcement which would require a quite a significant investigation of corporate governance at the fai like other things that come into this that we haven't even touched on the detail like the details baffling in this that in the midst of this um injunction uh story coming out a number of statements released by the fai apparently one of the statements they they said they had a governance review by someone who worked in the fa in the uk in corporate governance and they did a review and they recommended that obviously john delaney stepped down and moved to this different role all this happened in a number of days when previously the talk was oh well we'll eventually have some kind of corporate governance review and this happened in a couple of days after years of people saying that oh you know it was it was it was something on the back burner that this wasn't going to happen anytime soon yeah and, there was a lot of talk of the period of 2020 to 2024 would be a complete review of yeah. what was going on at the fai but like it's been needed for years. Like yeah. I don't know why. But they've now they've had it, it in. But now they've had it in a couple of days. Apparently, yeah, behind closed doors with no real oversight or no real like we haven't seen the the full report hasn't been issued or what the scope of that report was if that hasn't been issued and we don't know where where anybody stands or why this is recommended and what the precedent is for having this kind of role of executive vice president in charge of all these different roles and why how it could be signed off so quickly how a role of this magnitude could be created and not go through some kind of procurement process like none of this has been made clear to the to anybody outside of the fa fai maybe it has within the fai like the, if this was in another football association and i'm not even talking about the big one like if this was england it would be a complete scandal the whole board would have had to resign if this was england they've had to resign for a lot less than this in the past let alone if it was one of the european nations like france or germany or even spain or italy something like this would have caused a mass resignation because it is kind of it is the kind of stuff that has brought down FAs like in Italy when they've been like involved in the match fixing or have been aware of the match fixing situation it has re- resulted in the resignation of, of an enormous amount of figures but if this happened in Northern Ireland there would be there would be you know hell to pay over it or Scotland or Wales like the smaller FAs would also have this kind of issue because it is like a modern it's not like a banana I don't know what the correct term is, but it's not one of the, you know, the olden days when you'd see like Jack Warner uh, over in Trinidad and Tobago making deals with the F- with his own FA without having any backing or any approval and, you know, doing stuff with his, getting his own benefit out of it that's currently being investigated by the FA- FBI. Like that, that is one thing you might expect from past, you know, indiscretions, things before football governance actually became a hot topic before Sepp Blatter was removed from power, before Michel Platini was banned, before all of that happened. You could maybe get away with it, but this is going up to modern times, right up to now, up to this week, that this this whole organisation is trying to push this stuff under the carpet, ignore it, hope by like resigning or moving roles and co- cooking up a new role that you can kind of you know push attention off for long enough to just keep on going, doing what you're doing in the past. But do you think a lot of the kind of reason why this isn't as big as it probably should be? Like, this is this is still back-page news. It's not front-page news. Really. Well, it was front-page news on Sunday. All the But, but just it. the fact that John Delaney stepped down, like, the, like a week ago when the news initially broke, it was still back-page yeah, news. Yeah, true. Like, do you think that is to do with the fact that just the, the national team, like, the actual team itself just doesn't really get that much attention and in the press and when it does it's usually negative yeah well that, that's that's a curse of a team that's not doing particularly well in times gone past it would almost be I, I would contend it would almost be the reverse of what you're saying that if good if by playing well 
the team doing well and there be thereby being good back page fodder it would kind of brush this bad management under the carpet that that's what happened in 2002 if you remember like uh after saipan and the team doing well enough in the world cup getting knocked out in penalties to spain it kind of brushed it didn't brush the whole Roy Keane, Mick McCarthy, all that under the carpet, but it brushed the underlying issues under the carpet, which is the reason why Roy Keane blew up and the reason why Mick McCarthy had to send him home. Like, that's a personal thing that happened. But right before that, the reason Roy Keane picked up, he was annoyed at the FAI. He was annoyed that the way they behaved, he had been for several years before, for, for many years before, going back to the World Cup in 94, a very famous incident that happened with, you know, arguing and stuff like that that happened in 1994. But fo- no footballs were provided in 2002 in Saipan in the pre-World Cup climate, you know, to acclimatise training camp they were playing on effectively concrete car parks and Roy Keane lost it with the FAI because he knew how much money the FAI had he was becoming used to knowing how far, far eastern tourists could go he knew that Japan and South Korea had better facilities available than what the FAI had procured for them and they knew they were, he was, they were doing it on the cheap and probably as we said how would you uh, feathering their own nests with the the money that should have been put aside to help the team do the best for everyone back in Ireland, and that's what annoyed him, and that's the kind of behaviour that's rampant or appears to be allegedly rampant in the FAI. But is this now with this whole thing with John Delaney breaking? Is this a chance for the FAI to do something different to to fix things, or is this just John Delaney going to continue and they're going to bring in some yes man to take over the? chief executive role who will maybe do something with League of Ireland but not much else I can't I don't see a world where this doesn't continue in some form or another because that is kind of the the organisation as a whole it's I don't want to say it's rotten because there's very good people in the FAI like and John Delaney's probably a, a fine fellow and he probably just is acting as a completely rational human being and if anyone, if you were in, the, maybe you wouldn't if you were in his position, but maybe you would. If you're given this option and you could do this and do that and make your life better, make lives better for people around you without any, you know, sacrifice or without anything seeming that wrong with it, that you're only helping yourself so what's available to you. You're only being a rational human being. I, if, the, if the circumstances present themselves, I, it's not, maybe it's not John Delaney, maybe anyone in that position would take up the same course of action that he has and maybe his successor successors whatever way they work it as a CEO set up and down the line when he eventually leaves the FAI if he goes off to UEFA because that's another thing in this that he by keeping this high up role in the FAI he's managed to secure his his continued position as uh, UEFA executive officer which you know also denotes another six figure euro salary and you know keeps him a lot more powerful in the whole European football administration affairs and in prime position to move on to the similar position in FIFA in years to come. Yeah, because uh, I remember the last few years it's been talked about that John Laney really wants to go for the UEFA vice president role. Yeah. So this will allow him to keep going for that. Whether this actually dents his chances or not remains to be seen. But, I don't think it will because... like, Well, it probably won't be looked upon much by no, because, people outside of Ireland. Yeah, there is. There is a lot. It hasn't. It hasn't gained traction outside of Ireland even though it is an international lull. That there isn't that much news, like actual hard hitting football news out there this week, as as listeners might be aware, and this is a, a quite a big story, and it's been quite it's gone about like if this was just an a story in a vacuum, that you know there's been no talk ever before about John Delaney, his administrative prowess, the fact that he goes on TV shows, the ta- the fact he took that money from from Sepp Blatter and FIFA in years gone by, 
the fact that he gets paid a lot more than other people in the FAI, the fact that he claims a lot of expenses in the FAI and he goes in a lot of junkets and he, he has a very high opinion of his own abilities and has always been first to show those off at things, has very chummy political relationships with various different politicians in Ireland, which has kept him in a lot of people's good books. Uh, meanwhile, and this is no fault of him personally, the League of Ireland languishes. The winners of the of the League of Ireland don't get as much money as John Delaney gives in a bridging loan. His rental accommodation is less than the First Division League of Ireland champions get. Yeah, like but like that. It doesn't opti- optically, and pl- which is the important thing in this matter. It doesn't look good for the guy, and he says, "Oh, this is what I get paid in private sector." One, I don't think it would be, and two, you wouldn't get away with any of this behavior in the private sector. But like, how do you see? Is there a route for where? anything is fixed in the FAI or anything is fixed about the League of Ireland because the League of Ireland has fallen way, way back. Yeah. Like, we've talked about on the show before how, like, League of Ireland teams would get into the European Cup. Like, no Early team... 90s, they were not competing, but they were as good as the likes of, say, Slavia Prague are now who are in the quarterfinals of the Europa League. Irish teams were performing to that level. Yeah, no team currently in the division is anywhere near no. getting to a Champions League group stage. No. Like, a couple... If they like miracleized it... Like Shelburne, I remember, were, were once very close, lost to Deputy. It Dundalk got very close recently yeah. as well under uh, But the Steve real, Kenny. the closest was uh, Shelburne yeah. lost in a two-legged playoff, the, the match before the group stages. To Dep- that could have changed Irish football. They lost, and then all financial mismanagement, the League of Ireland, and all the teams kind of, almost, I don't think there was any team that was untouched by that financial mismanagement that happened including Shelburne basically going out of existence a lot of along with a lot of other League of Ireland clubs and that's been another huge fault uh, that people have said of Delaney's time as CEO it's yeah. like a, a lot of clubs have hit financial ruin like, yeah. like uh, what club was it that like basically went out of existence loads that down, Galway United but, did uh, Galway United did for a while obviously uh, but like there was one that like Shamrock one, one of the bigger clubs yeah I think it was Shamrock did yeah. Um, very few but did Cork City have issues as well yeah yeah. Limerick they've all, they've all, Limerick. yeah Limerick have Waterford have like teams that have had football teams long in long traditions of, of football teams at club level have all fall, fallen on harsh times in the last 10 years now in fairness the FAI only came in as a full on they're taking over administration of the league about 10 years ago but then whenever that was the hope when they came in oh maybe they'll sort everything out and that has become a stick to beat John Delaney and the FAI administration with because they haven't sorted it out. Like, sure, they've invested more money in pitches around the country and that's everyone appreciated of that. No one doubts the goodwill that's it's gone along with that. But the league itself, they've they've done very little to kind of incentive... Like, they've moved to a summer league. I don't know if that experiment's working or not. Maybe it is to try and... But you're competing with the GEA then, which is very powerful in Ireland uh, in terms of, like, mind share in the summer months it's hard to compete with that the the contract arrangements the clubs have they're all still their own autonomous units maybe that doesn't work anymore maybe they need to some central contracting like, yeah because that has actually cost yeah. clubs a lot of money over the years like a lot of players that end up going from League of Ireland to England go very cheaply yeah. because they're either out of contract or about to be out of contract yeah. and the club will say and very cheaply for an English club or a club in Scotland is an enormous amount of money. We're talking about, thir- like we were saying, 30 grand for the team that would win the first division in, in, in Ireland, the second tier of Irish football. Like, imagine, like, uh, this is the day and age where 30,000 is uh, an academy player's wages. 
Yeah, like, in a month. Look at Seamus Coleman when he was a Sligo Rovers. Like, he went off to Everton, one of yeah. the biggest clubs in England. Funded for, the training ground. Funded for what, a quarter of a million? Uh, I don't think it was that. I don't think it was even, that, even much. that much. But that, that's one of the few yeah. uh, transfers that, that was very lucrative for an Irish mm-hmm. side. And, that like, every team, every pundit you'll get talking about Everton yeah. over the last 10 years will tell you how much of a bargain that was yeah. for Everton. Yeah, and there's other clubs that do it. But, like, maybe by having essentially contracted players, you might have a bit better... I'm just saying that because you're coming from another side of things that in the last 10 years, as League of Ireland, say, if you're going back 15 years ago, League of Ireland and provincial rugby, for the most part, bar obviously big European nights, but on a league league basis, you know, when the, the beginning of the Celtic League, which is now the the, the Pro 14. 14, or, yeah, I think. Something like that is what it is, which is the Irish Rugby League that they compete in along with Welsh clubs and... Uh, for some reason, South African South African teams. clubs and Scottish clubs. There's four Irish there teams. Italian teams in that too? Yes. Yeah. There's four Irish clubs in that, you know, for lack of a better, on the island of Ireland. There's Ulster, Connacht, Munster and Leinster. And they all, even meagre financial means of, say, the, the likes of Connacht in the west of Ireland, do fantastically well when it comes to, they fill out a stadium of several thousand every single match. They do okay when it comes to transfers because everyone's centrally contracted. They can attract... Uh, coaches and players from abroad because they have a good network of scouts now rugby is a different sport but at the same time football and soccer is a lot bigger there's a lot more resources globally yeah you can draw from and they, they don't do that and is that because the network and the 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 kind of the size of these League of Ireland clubs prevents them from actually exploring bigger avenues abroad and maybe it does while if you link them all together and everyone works for a common aim there's no reason why you couldn't have a lot of players who go abroad from Ireland. This is what we talk about all the time. We were talking about this earlier in the show. That Ireland are performing very badly. And there's often that talk of, you know, older people saying, oh, the the kids today, they don't know how to play football. They don't go out in the streets and they won't play football. Like, yeah, but that's every, that's modern society. Get used to it. That's how things are going to be. Complaining about it isn't going to help. What would help is like maybe lads not going over, not leaving their education, not abandoning everything when they're 15 and going over to England to live in digs. And then not make it because the competition internationally is too too vast. Because in England, you don't seem like... In England or in other European countries, bar a few, like the major powers, especially in the Western part of Europe, you're looking at not, not a lot of youngsters going abroad at 15, unless they're very good. Yet it's the standard procedure for almost all semi-talented youngsters in Ireland is to leave the country and try and get into an English academy somewhere. And maybe by having everything centrally linked, centrally controlled having the the resources in place to keep people at home, to attract people at home, to have a league that can show that there's can, pro- can progress onto bigger and better things that they could. I'm not saying like the League of Ireland is ever going to produce teams that are going to regularly get into the Champions League, but sides that can at least do something in, you know, the, the pre-Europa League qualifying rounds and not be a, oh my God, uh, Sligo Rovers have got into the Europa League. This, yeah, is a, like when, this is an amazing thing. When Dundalk got there a few years Dundalk, ago, yeah. they, like, that was a huge yeah. thing. I'm like, oh my God, they're playing against yeah. like, AZ Alkmaar and going Spurs, up to Russia. Yeah. 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 Like, that was a huge deal. And it they was made a, a load deal. of money off that relative to yeah, what they and it's earned in kept, League of Ireland. And it's kept them going as a power in League of Ireland because they are losing all their good players whenever that something like that happens. But maybe they don't and maybe players see a bit of a future in Irish football for at least an interim period of their careers and you know, make something of themselves in locally because that's what happens in rugby. Like not everyone who plays rugby for Connacht, Leinster, Ulster or Munster 
becomes a millionaire and lives like lives their life off playing rugby a lot of them just play in a short space of time and then go on and do something else with their lives and maybe that can become something for soccer as well in the country and it would be i think it'd be great i think there's there's scope as we said earlier there's scope for fans to go see these matches but at the moment the quality is poor the facilities are poor the competition is poor no no one one wants to see that even if it's on in summer even if it's not because i remember when i was a child going to see the league of ireland matches and it was depressing on a on a cold frosty night on a Friday night, trying to go see a, a terrible team play terrible football. It wasn't the most enticing thing in the world, even if you love football. Because like, that's our, why numbers have dwindled, despite a population going up, despite a football soccer's popularity being perpetual. Like the, the number of people going abroad, like abroad the media sells out most yeah. matches. Like yeah, and but the number of people going to England every week has stayed for relatively constant. Going to see Premier League matches has stayed relatively constant when they played pre-season friendlies here the last few years in Ireland when Arsenal and Chelsea when Liverpool have played matches in Ireland they, they've huge popularity huge numbers of people have travelled to see them now if you could even recreate, recreate 10% of that for League of Ireland it, it would be immense and that could be enough to bring enough players here to play good football to progress the Irish style back to more of what people say it used to be when it used to be about passing it used to be about high pressing game used to be more akin to like the good quality football rather than long ball merchants as, as we became known as the British Isles style of play of football like maybe we can develop that more and you be something more we can be proud of the way that say the likes of rugby has been proud of in the last 10-15 years that that's not outside the realms of possibility with this but all of that being said I <laughs> I don't see anyone in the current setup of Irish football doing that yeah like uh... Like, it seems like I saw Niall Quinn was uh, linked with the role yeah. from the independent, but like I'm nothing against Niall Quinn. I really like good Niall politician. Quinn. Yeah, very good. Like did a very good job. Sunderland as chairman there uh, about ten years ago, yeah. uh, up until very recently. Then yeah. as well has been mooted multiple times to be chairman of Man City at some point. Yeah, in the future, and but, I I wouldn't be surprised if that happens. But when it comes to actually fixing the League of Ireland, which I think is a very pressing issue with Irish football, yeah. it's not something that I would think Niall Quinn would be the most nope. adept at doing. It's something that I would think Brian Kerr, who, who yeah. did so well with the underage squads back in the day, and even did quite well with the national side, even if he didn't quite qualify in for the In comparative Oros. terms. Yeah. Like, he like got the we, team playing quite well. We like played good we football, earlier. we're on the brink of qualifying, and we're very unfortunate. In difficult to, uh, groups as well. Yeah, like with Cherry Henry and Zidane, Zidane Claude McAuley, all coming back out of international retirement, saving France. You know, that that is the, the difference at the time. Like, now we'd be to play the style of football he played, to bring through the players he brought through, to do things differently in a, in a way that was unexpected, to bring back Roy Keane as it was at the time. He, you know, integrated all the all the underage teams together and had a had a, had a set style of playing football. Maybe it wasn't cut out for, you know, the complexity and extravagance of international football at the time from the top, top teams. But now I, I don't see how he, his methods wouldn't have worked and we'd be absolutely chuffed to have him. Yeah, I think him as CEO, or at least in a role to, in a role to w- fit leave Ireland, I think yeah. is what we need. Well, as was it, uh, Jamie Duff has often said, he is shocked and appalled that Brian Kerr is not involved yeah. somewhere in the FAI. His breadth of knowledge of Irish football, past and present, is amazing. He knows so much about Irish football, League of Ireland football. Whatever you think of the guy, he knows stuff about Irish football that most of us could never even dream of knowing. And him and people that would be like him would be ideal for bringing kind of Irish football into a new age. But this is all fanciful talk because 
eight statements into this uh, FAI kind of scandal, for lack of a better Nine phrase. Nine times the charm. Like, I don't, I don't, like, John Delaney, for all we know, could be there for years to come and he could be back in his normal role as CEO or effective CEO or whatever he wants to call himself, making decisions in the FAI, keeping everything ticking over. It suits him just fine. It suits the people around him just fine, which is the more important thing because no one in the FAI is voting to change anything. They're happy with the way things are. And if they're happy with the way things are, nothing's going to change, despite anyone being unhappy about this or that, because the only people who actually, you know, would show dissent are afraid of doing it. And I've heard this before that, say, local local clubs, local um, community, regional development, soccer, like federations, you know, like for, I can't think of the word for it, but you know when a group of clubs come together from Galway or a group of clubs come together from the southeast or all of them come together, they go to the big AGMs for the FAI and they can voice dissent and concern about the management of the FAI, but then we'll see next time, will they get much funding from the FAI? Yeah, that's a good point, yeah. So they don't, and then they keep on ticking on because they have to keep operations ticking over and maybe they're worried that they might lose one of their jobs next time there's a call of layoffs. of the Tottenham we believe in the history the international break for the season finally over no more international football now to the end of the season we can finally crack on with the business end of the Premier League season trademark uh, they should probably get that trademarked at this point I think squeaky it's bum been, time yeah squeaky bum time just just get it all there uh, we've, got, we've got one pretty big match for the return of the Premier League for the Tottenham race and the top four race as uh, Liverpool host Tottenham at Anfield on Sunday this week how do you think uh, that one's going to go oh it's Liverpool victory all over like Spurs have flattered to deceive as we've said many times already this season their form has been terrible but now yeah now they're starting to actually show up in matches I think they're chuffed to be as as the word of the day is chuffed they're chuffed to be in the quarterfinals of the Champions League with a realistic you know relatively realistic prospect to go through like they probably fancy themselves more in a two-legged tie against Man City than necessarily doing a two-legged tie against Barcelona so they have that to look forward to and this is just going to be an away match in Liverpool where they do not have a great record where they were not played they were kind of I don't know outplayed the words earlier in the season oh yeah they were outplayed yeah, it outplayed. was 4-1 I think was it yeah and they were poor in that 4-1 as well I remember like like last season it wasn't I'm, even close they, like... won a, they won last season but I remember that was very much uh uh, what you call it? A kind of Simon Mingley, Dejan Lovren show. I mean, Dejan Lovren got. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. Dejan Lovren was subbed off for yeah. 20 minutes. Yeah, and that was Mignolet, one of Mignolet's last matches. And then the reverse fixture, as in this one that we are going to see yeah. on Sunday, was an absolutely weird match where Liverpool seemed to be in control at 1 0 up for quite some time. And then Victor Wanyama scored this absolutely incredible shot yeah. from 40 yards out or whatever it was to make it 1 uh, 1. And then. Harry Kane won a really controversial penalty Yeah. Uh, to make it 2-1. This Salah scored an absolutely incredible goal. Or maybe it was a penalty to make it 2-1. I can't remember what it finished 2-1 anyway. Uh, sparked a really weird rivalry between fans for a couple of weeks. And yeah. It just was generally annoying. But, but I don't uh, see return of that kind yeah, of... Yeah, uh, that, that was a weird match. Like, that's not the kind of match you can repeat. No. Now, saying that, now this is a post-international matchup. So, so Tottenham have had a bit of rest for the most part. Yeah, and you know Liverpool have had a lot of players travelling a lot of different directions. Kazakhstan for like Andy Robertson and poor Andy Robertson. Yeah, to lose, 
but like they do have an international squad that does do a fair bit of travelling so they will be back late late on this week at the, for the players left there will be you know obviously they would have had rest and a good few training sessions so maybe uh, Jurgen Klopp will use some of those players more in this match but I, I can see this being a Liverpool victory and not necessarily that comfortable because of say the, the circumstances surrounding the international matches and players travelling a long distance and maybe being a bit tired but the same thing counts for Tottenham as well for, for in some part so I, I still think Liverpool should win this on form and on quality and uh, with the rest of the matches, do you see any kind of upsets there? Like Man United, Watford, Chelsea, Cardiff, Arsenal, Newcastle? No, because they all seem to have, like, Arsenal, as long as it's at home, they will win. That's, yeah, that's I feel like Newcastle matches. have always been kind of an easy opposition for Arsenal at home. Watford going away to Man United, it won't be as comfortable as, say, other matches Watford have had against Manchester United when they've been a lot more competitive. I think a lot of Man United players will be raring to go at this. Cause... Yeah, a lot of a lot of players uh, did not play at international break. And even then, like, Paul Pogba did play, but played very well yeah. in a way that carried on he needed. Yeah. yeah. From earlier. Uh, congrats to Victor Lindelof, who's become a father this week, actually. Oh, nice. I, just, I saw that earlier. <laughs> nice for Victor Lindelof. Yeah, because he, he did play for Sweden. Uh, yeah. And Man City Fulham has to be 4 5 nil. Yeah, think. Fulham are on the brink at this point. They, I don't know what their, their plan is between now and the summer, but I would imagine planning for next season in the Championship will be top of their agenda. Well, there was talk of uh, Jean-Michel Serri has already said that he's gone. Oh, yeah, gone back to France probably. Yeah, it's been it's been an interesting experiment for him. I think he should go to a bigger side and maybe it'll be a bargain for Barcelona at this point <laughs> to pick him up in <laughs> the summer. Uh, but yeah, uh, I I see a lot of those players leaving and maybe another rebuilding job of Fulham. It's a strange one because Fulham has generally been been a, de- a decently run side, surprisingly considering uh, Mohamed Al Fayed was the owner for so long. And but the the new owner who uh, who owns what you call it in. Uh, the Minnesota. No, he owns the Caroline Panthers. Is it the Pan- Oh yeah, it is the Panthers. Yeah. Yeah. Um. You know. Shahid Khan. I think. Is yeah. His name. Like, he has been clever. He didn't tried to buy Wembley. <laughs> yeah. Well, that that's a fair enough. Like a business. Yeah, well, that's the kind of money he's got. Like. Yeah. Uh. But with him, he's. You'd think you know they they managed themselves well in the championship. They didn't panic when they didn't eventually immediately get repromoted. They consolidated. They they made good signings. They, they pointed, built up youth players. They as well. did, yeah, and they they and they held on to some of their youth products, which was an achievement at the time. Uh, and then just getting into the Premier League, they just have not done enough. They spent a hundred million, like that's unprecedented yeah. for a newly promoted side. But mostly buying either young, untested, or kind of rejected big club players on loan, the likes of Callum Chambers, Andre Andre Shirley. Uh, John Michael Sarri as you said John even Michel like Sarri. Ryan Babel there yeah, in January when they really one. didn't need an attacker like they needed defensive options I think options. it was just a case of they could, it was all the only thing they could get and yeah, it feels it just, very scattered when, in their approach yeah, getting Ranieri and then him kind of turning things around and then it just falling back through the ground reminds you that maybe there's something else afoot at this club because he did turn things around very like when you see things like uh, was it what was his name Kamara yeah, Kamara. Yeah. Missing the penalty, taking the ball off Mitrovic and missing the penalty and then getting dropped and, you know, having, you know, when the players... And then are getting into a fight with Mitrovic off-field as yeah. well, when doing the players, yoga. It's self-destruct... Yeah, doing yoga. It's self-destruction in that club at the moment and, like... Nothing with, gets you in a fight mood like doing a bit of yoga. Yeah, with, with Mitrovic. But, like, they're, they just don't have it. They don't have whatever... 
Like they're a nice club and everyone but that's the problem. Everyone likes someone to follow them, everyone likes someone to Craven Cottage. Yeah, that's, Craven Cottage is that nice, nice stadium, stadium everyone yeah. wants to go to. And then you can get a good win there and everything like that. So yeah. Poor uh poor, poor Fulham. They're going down. Yeah, them at Huddersfield, yeah. And Cardiff. They were you say, see Cardiff are still close enough that they could turn oh, things yeah. around. So but, are Fulham. No, Fulham are like a couple of points ahead of Huddersfield. Yeah, but they're they're closer than Huddersfield, that's my real point. Huddersfield are gone. Yeah. We don't I, even think about Huddersfield and poor Huddersfield. Yeah, no. poor Huddersfield. Like they're making plans for the future. They've got that manager in Yeah, and Seaver, yeah, he was doing a good job for all well, he's got a couple of wins already. Yeah, we'll see how they do. I think he's planned for next year and I think he took that job knowing what full well that it would be likely a championship job. So uh, hopefully with the return of the Premier League and the other European leagues, we'll see a few goals as we prepare for the Champions League coming back. Soon after. I'm looking forward to the quarterfinals, even though... <laughs> We're just gone from international football straight to the Champions League. Yeah, you know, Champions League is where, what it's all about, really. Uh, but hopefully, you know, Liverpool Tottenham is a big match. Hopefully it lives up to expectations. You know, 2-2 last year was still exciting. With Tottenham, and interesting just before we leave it, with Tottenham this weekend, if they do lose, like, where does that leave their top four ambitions? Well, they could because end up easily, below Arsenal. Yeah, Arsenal could get, Man United could get right up on top of I them. I think Man United would be level on points with them yeah. if both teams won. And who knows the goal difference at that point? Yeah, especially if Liverpool do actually. Like if Liverpool well, I don't really... think they'll do that, but yeah, it could, it's 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 within the realm of possibility. But like Tottenham will probably go out and win 5 0 now because we've said it. Yeah. Uh, like it is still a huge perform. Like a huge performance is needed for Liverpool because they fall behind City now in the title race. Like if yeah. they go out and actually smash Tottenham. Three or four nil, like that's a statement right there. That, yeah. You know they want this title. Yeah, it is. I don't believe they'll do that. I don't believe they want. I think they. No, I see. I can see it being cagey. Yeah. In a way that we haven't really seen big matches be in the last few years in the Premier League, at least, yeah. and especially where you're in Klopp. So yeah, uh, like it's been a long time since we've. It's been two years since we've had an international break with this much riding on it. As in. This is a competitive international break. Last year, the World Cup was coming up. Yeah, it was all friendly. Yeah. like there wasn't even that much like experimentation was happening. Players are being rested. Like think about the break that's happened here as well. In the sense that, well, like what have we missed with the Premier League last year? Like yeah. there was a break, and it's actually kind of nice to have the weekend off. You know, yeah. there's nothing much Man going City on. Were rolling away with the league. Yeah, there was Champions nothing, you know, League was like we got a low, we got a feast with the Champions League. We didn't really yeah. need it back that soon. So. It wasn't a huge annoyance in the way that it kind of has been this time. <laughs> all we've had is FAI. That's it. Yeah, like this time, like that's all that's left. It's, anyway. it's like it, the season's been ramping up week after week, and then all of a sudden there's just this break, yeah. and it really kind of destroys the momentum. So hopefully we can regain that momentum. Yeah, as fans of because the sport. we have like Zidane is back in Spain and in Germany. There seems to be a title race. Bayern are making it interesting again. Uh, being up there, then not being up there, then being up there. You know. Uh, with a, a title decider coming up in April, uh, Paris, France is just destroyed. Uh, yeah, it's interesting to see Italy what's going on with well. Inter Milan, I suppose. It's just not really. <laughs> it's kind of like well, it's uh, just funny. Yeah, it's just it's just last year's Roma. Uh, so uh, we'll be back again next week to discuss some actual football results because we didn't talk about many of them this week. Two really, I think. England won. Yeah, five nil. Yeah, they're England. playing much later as we record. Uh, I assume they're winning that. Let us know how that match goes. Yeah, let us know future. in the future. Even yeah. though you know, I'm sure we'll find out in five minutes. Yeah. Uh, thanks for being here, Andrew. Thanks for having me, Declan. And uh, we'll be back in next week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, then don't forget you can tell family and friends about the show. Spread the word of the Total Football Takeover. You can also follow us on social media at the TF Pod on Twitter and Total Football Pod on Instagram. 
You can also be found on podcast services, including Spotify, by searching Total Football Podcast. The more the merrier. That's what we always say.